0: Punk is part of the reason why I am particularly excited to be presenting on the World Health Organization's new treatment guidelines for persons living with HIV and consider what this means for the South African life insurance industry. To give context to our treatment guidelines, we've structured our presentations to first look at some interesting statistics about the disease, both at a global and national level. And then, to break the monotony of just providing pure numbers, I've asked my colleague, Dr. Proctor, to help us understand HIV and some of the factors driving its prognosis. He will then take us through the history of Test and Treat and why it is so important. I will then dive into the opportunities Test and Treat may provide the life insurance industries, some further refinements for consideration, and hopefully follow that up with a very vibrant question and discussion section. So let's jump right into it. The 2016 HIV estimates released by the WHO show that almost 37 million persons worldwide living with HIV, with more than 70% of this number living in Africa. Another bit of interesting statistics, also released by the WHO, looks at what they call the ART coverage percentage. Now, this is simply the number of persons who are on antiretroviral therapy as a proportion of those persons living with HIV. Now, this was measured at three time points between 2000 and 2016. Now, out of the six WHO regions pulled shown in the previous slide, we've pulled the results for Africa, Southeast Asia, and then to make things interesting, we've thrown in the results for the world without Africa included. Now, in 2000, both Africa and Southeast Asia had less than 0.5% ART coverage. By 2010, both regions had amped up their ART coverage to just around 20%. But what was really remarkable was between 2010 and 2016, the ART coverage percentage for Africa had increased dramatically, even outpacing the results for the rest of the world without Africa included. And I think this is quite reflective of the commitment shown by the region as a whole to combat the HIV epidemic. So how do these numbers translate into a South African context? The 2016 HIV estimates, 2016 HIV estimates also produced by the WHO, show that almost seven million South Africans were living with HIV. Now this marked a 16% increase from the six million seen in 2010. Now an increasing number, an increasing number of persons with HIV on its own may be worrying. But if we take a look at the breakdown between the number of new infections and the number of old diagnoses, what you will see is that the number of new infections are on, on the decline and persons with HIV are actually living longer. Now, a lot of the progress South Africa has seen with the disease has been largely due to the national ART program that was rolled out in 2004. Now, based on the 2016 numbers, just under 4 million South Africans are on antiretroviral therapy. And this marked marked almost 60% of the HIV, HIV positive population. So now, while the results from WHO are great to look at at an overall level, it does not provide us with much details about the profile of lives being tested. For this, we've had to turn to a recent study that was conducted by Hanover in collaboration with Lancet Laboratories. So while not directly comparable with the WHO, since the results from the study would only reflect the persons who are getting tested for HIV in a particular year, the study still does provide us with some insights into the profile of lives, some of which you may find interesting. Now for the study, data was completely anonymized to Hanoveri researchers, We pulled information on the date of testing, source of testing, demographic information. And for the source of testing, we had categorized it into two buckets, insurance testing versus outpatient. Insurance testing just means whether or not a person came in for an HIV test as a result of an insurance application. And outpatient testing is just everything else. So before I turn over to Matthew, let's look at some of the interesting results that came out of that study. Now, if we were to look at the prevalence by calendar year and also source of testing, we'll see quite interestingly that prevalence decreased over the period for your outpatient data, but for your insurance testing, it increased. And we believe that the increase in prevalence seen may be reflective of the increased number of insurers who are now offering cover to persons living with HIV. Now, if we looked at the age profile of the lives being tested, you will see that, I'll show you just now what you'll see, (laughs) that for your insurance testing data, prevalence was highest in the 35 to 40 age group bucket, while for the outpatient data, prevalence was highest in the 40 to 45 bucket. Now, if we were to take the insurance testing data and add gender to the mix, you will see that females had a higher prevalence than male in all but the later age group where the prevalence for males were slightly higher. I'm now going to turn over to Matthew who is going to take us through a little bit of HIV 101.
1: Thank you, Kadeem. It was a little bit short for me. That's all right. It's quite interesting being in a room full of actuaries. It's not something that... uh, I think you think about when you are studying medicine. But anyway, here I am. The interesting thing I find is, a lot of actuaries you speak to wanted to be doctors, and a lot of doctors you speak to said that they would have done actuarial science if they didn't do medicine. And I think in, in my role in insurance medicine, you actually get to live a little bit of both worlds, because you get to marry the clinical medicine with the numbers, and that really is quite an interesting thing. So. I was also sort of conned. I wasn't conned by my boss, I was conned by dean, And here I am today. And uh, the issue of HIV and life insurance was quite an interesting topic to, to delve into and to dissect. Um, and I think that as we've poured over literally hundreds of articles, what we've really found is that the literature is very promising. And I think as, as a life insurance industry, it's definitely time to think about HIV differently in how we design our products and how we underwrite HIV. So, where should I point this video? It'll come eventually. There we go. So in order to understand why HIV has become an insurable condition, we need to understand the basics of HIV and why this once inevitably fatal infection has essentially become a manageable chronic condition. Now at the heart of it all, HIV affects the immune system, which is very complex, but really it affects CD4 cells, which are a key player in the management and the regulation of our immune system and our ability to fight infections and cancers. So, how exactly then does HIV cause problems? Well, first of all, you have your CD4 cells, and HIV loves CD4 cells. This we term cell tropism, and it's basically one of the things that contributes to the pathogenicity or the ability of HIV to cause disease. So, how does this then damage the immune system? HIV has an excellent ability to enter CD4 cells without problem. And this is really where the damage starts to begin. So beginning with as little as one infected CD4 cell, but often it's more than that, the HIV virus uses a CD4 cell's own uh, replication mechanisms to multiply itself and ultimately what you end up with is a much bigger population of CD4 cells And in addition to that, you end up with a whole lot of free virus particles which are then able to go and infect further CD4 cells. A replication cycle can last last only between one to two days, so the rate of replication is very high. So we turn this viral replication, and ultimately, what this leads to is a high viral load. Now, one thing to remember is that this high rate of replication comes at a cost. The cost is that you end up with mutated virus particles. So the virus particle that came from the preceding virus particle is often very different and this causes problems in your body's own fight against HIV infection and it also causes a lot of problems when you're trying to treat HIV with standard regimens. So very important to remember, remember the word mutations because this has a large effect on the prognosis of HIV. So, if you think of a normal CD4 cell count, it sits at around 500 to 1600 cells per cubic millimeter, but what we see in chronic untreated HIV infection is on top of this high viral replication, you end up with destruction of your CD4 count, and your CD4 cell population diminishes, and ultimately, and it's not uncommon to see this even today, sadly to say, is that CD4 cells can go as low as 10 cells per cubic millimeter. So ultimately you end up with CD4 cell destruction which leads to a low CD4 count and ultimately immune system dysfunction. And this is obviously what we don't want. Now another thing which makes HIV an incredibly clever virus is that in the initial stages of infection, it infects CD4 cells but some of the CD4 cells in various organs around the body actually don't start actively replicating. Now this population of CD4 cells, we term HIV latent reservoirs. And the problem with latent reservoirs is that your body and medication can't fight against the virus it can't see or is not actively replicating. So over time, these latent reservoirs uh, start to reproduce virus cells and this causes problem in treatment. And this is why people need to take treatment all the time. So ultimately, in a clinical setting, how does this affect people? Well. You end up with low CD4 cells, low CD4 cell count over time, and you end up with a high viral load. And it is this combination of a low CD4 count and a high viral load that causes all the problems. So, what are the problems? Well, one of the problems is a higher incidence of cancer, and in particular, AIDS-defining cancers, such as cervical cancer and Hodgkin non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, It can also cause things like liver cancer when in conjunction with comorbid diseases, which are basically diseases that occur along with HIV, such as hepatitis. The next thing that is of concern is the effect on our immune system in terms of infections. So in HIV we have opportunistic infections, such as pneumonias, meningitis, chronic gastroenteritis, You then also have the effect of HIV on specific organs, which can cause problems such as cardiomyopathies um, and also encephalopathy, dementia. Lastly, you can have systemic disease, which is as a result of accelerated vascular disease in the state of chronic untreated HIV infection. Ultimately, what we're really talking about is high morbidity and high mortality, and this is really what we saw as a country with very high mortality rates. Not all bad news, though, because we live in an era of antiretroviral treatment, and all the things that I've been telling you about occur in someone who has immune system dysfunction, and in an era of antiretroviral treatment, what we basically do is we prevent the life cycle of HIV from occurring, and because of this, our immune system reconstitutes, and in an era of test and treat, what we're looking forward to is a state where immune system dysfunction is prevented in the first place. Now, there's a lot of good news about HIV, but I think that what's very important is to still be quite pragmatic and practical in how we look at factors that affect the prognosis. Really, what I've said is that ultimately, CD4 counts and viral load is how we monitor disease progression and response to treatment, A low CD4 count is indicative of disease progression and high viral loads occur in people who are not on treatment or in people who are failing treatment. So the most important prognostic factor is antiretroviral treatment. And I think this speaks for itself. Essentially what happens when you take antiretroviral antiretroviral treatments or ART and it's continuous and successful, what you end up with is a state where the viral load becomes undetectable, which is the desired clinical outcome, and your immune system recovers, or in a test and treat environment, you prevent that immune system dysfunction from occurring in the first place. Next, if you look at the literature, there's underlying evidence in all the papers that we've read that persons who have suffered from AIDS-defining illnesses or comorbidities, for example, hepatitis that I've mentioned, The morbidity and mortality in these populations, in HIV studied populations, is much higher than in those who didn't suffer from ADIs or comorbidities. Again, though, in an era of test and treat, we're hopefully gonna prevent immune system dysfunction, and so hopefully that type of ADI or comorbidity will not occur in the first place. Another important factor is socioeconomic class. Now, socioeconomic class, or SEC, is largely a, uh, an, in, an indication of access to healthcare, and in this case antiretrovirals. So we're in no way saying that HIV is a classless disease. Anyone can get HIV, but in the past we've seen, and in the literature that we've read and gone through, lower socioeconomic classes tend to have a higher morbidity and mortality in HIV studied populations. Lastly, but definitely not least, has to do with your route of infection. In the literature, what we've read is that persons who are infected through intravenous drug use tend to have a significantly, in fact, unpriceable um, mortality. And this has probably to do with a few factors, um, not least of which is the fact that amongst sharing drug users, you end up spreading different strains of HIV. And there used to be a bit of a misconception um, quite a few years ago that you could only get infected with HIV once. Now, if you consider that you're getting HIV transmitted between different parties with their own different strains of mutations, you can actually end up getting infected with multiple strains multiple times. And this, down the line, has a massive impact on the ability to treat HIV, uh, particularly with standard drug regimens. And if you can't treat HIV, you end up with the worst-case scenario like I've described, where you've got high viral loads and low CD4 counts. Now, What's obviously important, and this is really why we're here today, is we should go back into the past and understand how treatment guidelines have evolved over time. Now, depending on what country you're in, uh, any, any country's Department of Health over time has had the option to implement whatever treatment strategy or treatment guidelines they wanted but what we've done in South Africa is we've largely followed the World Health Organization, or the WHO, and what we see is that over time, treatment guidelines have changed, which I will show you, eventually. In around about the year 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, the treatment guidelines only suggested starting HIV treatment when your CD4 count was less than 200. Now, obviously, based on what I've said, at a CD4 count of less than 200, you have got severe immune system dysfunction, and obviously your morbidity and mortality is extremely high. In addition, you could have started treatment if you had a WHO stage three or four illness, or if you had significant symptoms. If we fast forward to 2012, what we see is that the treatment guidelines have changed and the threshold is now 350. And if we fast forward to 2014, we see that the treatment guidelines had now become 500 as a threshold. Really what we've seen over time, and this is a function of the medical fraternity's understanding of HIV, is that the treatment guidelines have changed because we know more and more about HIV, and obviously this is very important in how we can approach it from a life insurance point of view. If we think of a few factors that have driven this change, one of the factors has to do with the efficacy of the medication itself, whereas in the past, uh, medication regimens were different to what they are now. The drugs weren't as efficacious as they are now. If we think about the side effect profile of medications, one of the big problems in the past is that there were significant side effects to taking the medication and this obviously had quite an impact on top of the HIV on a patient's life, not least of which has to do with compliance. So when we think about compliance, we now live in an era where we have fixed dose combinations, and essentially what fixed dose combination means is that someone who's living with HIV takes one tablet once a day, and that's how they treat it. If you compare that to the early days of treating HIV, Patients often had to take different combinations. So for example, it could have been three tablets in the morning and two at night, and the ones in the morning were slightly different to the ones at night. Now if anyone here takes any kind of chronic medication, even if it's for something as simple as high blood pressure, you'll know then that compliance was a major issue and it drove the morbidity and mortality because treatment regimens failed as people stopped taking the medications. The last thing has to do with cost. And this is probably one of the most significant gains. And basically what's happened with cost is, in the early days, it would cost about 60,000 rand per person per year to treat HRD. If we look forward to 2018, which was recently announced by the health minister, Dr. Aaron Mussolini, the cost for treating a patient per year is a 1,000 rand around about. So there's been significant gains. The other important fact which I'd like to just point out as well is, If we think about treating people when their CD4 counts were very low, what they also had at that time was high viral loads, which obviously increased the ability of persons infected with HIV to then go and spread HIV to other parties. So as the guidelines have changed, we're treating people earlier, and this has in fact also then limited the ability to spread HIV as viral loads became undetectable and suppressed. What we've also seen, which is very encouraging, is that In all the literature we've read in HIV studied populations in this time period, the median CD4 counts have become significantly higher, and from a life insurance point of view, this is very promising for us. But really, why we're here today is the culmination of the World Health Organization announcing the test and treat guidelines. And essentially, It was well signed up in this statement, which came in September 2015, which said that, in treatment, strong evidence has emerged to show that using ART earlier results in better clinical outcomes for people living with HIV compared to delayed treatment. And essentially, the World Health Organization guidelines for treating HIV, and they've been adopted by National Department of Health, are that anyone diagnosed with HIV, regardless of CD4 count, should now be treated with antiretroviral treatment. So, from a clinical point of view, doctors can now look forward to treating healthy HIV-infected persons, and from a life insurance point of view, it opens, us a whole new, opens up a whole new world to us, and Kadeen is gonna tell us a bit more about that.
0: Thanks, Matthew. So now that we've seen how the treatment guidelines have changed throughout the years, Let's have a look at how the life insurance industry also evolved in terms of the products and benefits being offered to persons living with HIV. Now, up to early 2000, HIV testing for life insurance cover was standard, and policies would be declined if they came back with a positive test result. HIV exclusion clauses were also a staple in the market, and these would exclude the payment of benefits to an insured who was HIV negative at application stage, but who then became HIV positive later on if the benefits being claimed for were directly related to HIV or AIDS. HIV was considered uninsurable. Uninsurable. (laughs) There you go. Now fast forward to 2004, the national ART program was rolled out in South Africa to persons who would have met the eligibility criteria seen in 2000. Products were now being offered to persons who were HIV negative at application stage, but who then became HIV positive later on. These products were largely restricted to persons who would have acquired HIV medically, so that is via blood transfusion, or occupationally, so your doctors, nurses, etc., and were usually restricted to very small sums assured. Now, by 2014, the ART coverage percentage had increased to 45%, and the mortality rates for persons living with HIV had declined dramatically. So the market had now become more open to offering not only more mortality but limited morbidity products as well to persons who were HIV positive at application stage. Now with the introduction of test and treat, are we at a point where we can offer cover very similar to your standard insured life? And for more affordable prices? Um, Perhaps you could just tell me where exactly to point this? Okay, so when we think about the the opportunities that test and treat may provide the life insurance industry, it does make sense to think along the three most common lines of business, your mortality, critical illness, and disability. Now, currently, a majority of the players do offer some form of mortality solutions for persons living with HIV, but we see a wide range of prices. Now, we've looked at one possible approach to updating your pricing to allow for the expected impact of test and treat. Now for this we had to rely on a study that was done in the UK where they followed persons who were accessing treatment from their national public health system. Persons had different CD4 counts at diagnosis and they were put on antiretroviral therapy also at diagnosis. So very similar to your test and treat scenario. Persons were placed into different buckets based on their CD4 counts at diagnosis. And this is what you'll see along your x-axis as soon as the graph comes up. There you go. Now what we did was to compare the QX rate from the different HIV buckets to the QX rate for a standard insured life. Now this ratio is what is called the relative mortality risk. And this is what you'll see along your Y axis. Now the relative mortality risk for a standard insured life was 100% in this particular example since it's our comparison group. Now, without allowing for any of the factors we know to influence HIV prognosis, we had relative mortality risk ranging from as high as 1,500% in your CD4 count less than 50 bucket to just over 300% in your CD4 count greater greater than 500. Now, this means for a person sitting in your CD4 count less than 50 bucket, you could expect to pay, on average, at least 15 times the premium of your standard insured life. Now, this graph underscores why, at certain CD4 count, it becomes just too costly to afford cover, and also why, historically, the insurance industry did not provide insurance cover to certain class of HIV-positive life. Now, a relative mortality risk of 300%, even for your best CD4 class, on its own is relatively expensive. But if we allowed for factors such as age, gender, socioeconomic class, we may be able to refine the cost applicable to that pool of life sitting with a CD4 count greater than 500. Now, one possible way of doing this is to assume that the UK's findings were more or less in line with your South African socioeconomic class one and then one or two. And then we could apply some sort of mortality age differential and derive relative mortality risk rates that varied by CD4 count at starter diagnosis, age, gender, and socioeconomic class, for example. Now let's take a look at how the relative mortality risk rate may vary for different socioeconomic class age profile. Now socioeconomic class, as Matthew pointed out earlier, acts as a proxy for access to healthcare, and it plays quite a significant role in mortality differential. And you can see that coming through quite clearly in the graph graph behind me. Then another point to highlight is that your relative mortality risk decreases over the lifetime of the policyholder. Now this means that using a flat extra mortality loading may not be entirely appropriate as it doesn't capture the pattern of risk likely to emerge. Now let's turn our attention to critical illness and disability. Now currently, there are quite a few offering of critical illness and disability, both basic and comprehensive for your HIV positive life. But again, we see for a wide range of prices. Now, in order to price CI or disability, you need a incidence rate. Now, this is simply the weighted average probability of all the conditions covered occurring, where the weight's used is your expected distribution of your CI or disability claims. Now our approach for pricing disability was exactly the same as it is for pricing CI. So in the interest of time, we'll walk you through the details of our CI pricing, but only show how the disability cost for your HIV positive life compares to that of your standard life. Currently, there isn't a lot of literature that looks at the morbidity rates for HIV positive lives in its totality. So given that your CI and disability rates are a combination of condition-specific rates, our approach was to derive relative risk rates for your HIV-positive lives for each of the conditions covered in your comprehensive CI rate. And this we did with the help of medical literature and input from our doctors. So we grouped the CI conditions covered into five categories. Cancer, which includes AIDS and non-AIDS, cardiovascular disease, neurological, which includes stroke, other natural, and a non-natural component. Now for the cancer and cardiovascular CI incidence, we relied on two separate studies that were done in the US. Now what was really nice about these two papers was that they had a control group of HIV-negative lives being matched to your HIV-positive lives, on factors such as age, gender, and other risk factors for cancer and cardiovascular disease. Now, the reason why this is particularly important is that it reduces the possibility of other risk factors distorting the relationship seen between HIV and a respective CI event. Now, for the cardiovascular study, it showed a doubling of the incidence for a 30 to 39-year-old male, whereas the cancer study also showed a two-fold increase, also for the same model point. The study we used for neurological incidents showed the relative increase in the neuro risk due to HIV after allowing for factors such as your demographic factors and your stroke risk factors was one and a half. Other natural was done in a similar fashion and for non-natural, we assume that having HIV didn't have an impact on this particular component. Now using our hanover CI experience, we have a look at the CI, the breakdown of the CI claims by different profiles. So if we were to take, for example, a 30 to 40 year old male on standard rates, you will see that almost 80% of the CI claim causes were due to cancer, cardiovascular, and neuro-combined. Thank you. Now, interestingly, if we were to contrast this against a 50 to 60-year-old male, also in standard rate, you see a slightly different picture emerging. Almost 89% of the CI claims were due to cancer, cardiovascular, and neuro-combined. And I think this underscores our earlier point where we mentioned a flat EM loading may not be entirely appropriate. Now using the results from our Hanover CI experience, input from our medical doctors, as well as as the results from the medical research, we were able to derive an estimate of your CI costs for your HIV positive life relative to your standard life. And similarly, an estimate of the disability cost relative to your standard life. Now, it's important to highlight that the cost differential seen between your HIV positive life and your standard life will change depending on the age of the lives being considered. So for your disability cost, for example, you would expect to see accidental and musculoskeletal claims accounting for majority of the disability claims at the younger ages. Whereas at the older ages, you would expect to see natural causes, sorry, accounting for a greater proportion. So now that we've covered our pricing approach, let's have a look at what factors were allowed for in our underwriting versus those that were considered as a part of our pricing basis. Now using underwriting to select our pool of lives, we required persons to have undetectable viral load, no AIDS defining illnesses, and they had to have been on antiretroviral therapy for at least six months, and can show evidence of good compliance. Of course, regular compliance is always preferred, but that can be quite costly and admin-intensive. So the pros and cons of each option will have to be weighed. Then for our pricing basis, age, gender, and socioeconomic class all play significant roles in mortality and morbidity differentials. So we allowed for these in our pricing basis. Then there's smoking status. From the medical literature we have seen that an HIV positive person who smokes tend to have a disproportionately higher mortality and morbidity rate than his HIV negative counterpart. So you'll have to allow for this accordingly. Then there's the age old debate about CD4 count at diagnosis versus current CD4 count. Now this is quite a popular discussion in the medical circle And one school of thought is that CD4 count at current CD4 counts would already be reflective of all that would have happened to your immune system up to that point, whereas your CD4 count at at diagnosis would tell of the worst possible damage to your immune system, which may not necessarily be reflected in your current CD4 count. Now, there's some additional factors that are not commonly used by the life insurers, and you may wanna allow for this either in your underwriting or pricing basis. And these are factors such as infection route. Currently, IV, IV drug use is captured at underwriting, but you may be able to use probably other proxy questions to deduce risky behavior. Then there's duration on ART, as well as CD4 count at treatment inception. Now, CD4 at treatment inception and CD4 at diagnosis is only the same in a test and treat scenario. In other scenarios, you'd expect these two numbers to differ. So you may want to allow for this accordingly. So there's still room for refinement as we go about updating our models to allow for test and treat. And top of the list is the applicable extra mortality or EM loading. And this is one that we've touched on quite a few times throughout the presentation. Now, a flat EM loading, while easy to apply, does not necessarily reflect the pattern of risk likely to emerge. There are two other possible options to consider. A flat loading that's age dependent, or a per permal loading that's additive to your QX. But both of these are not without their own challenges. So let's have a look at how the premium patterns would differ for the different options. And for the purpose of this analysis, we've assumed that the relative mortality risk rate that is required for your HIV-positive life is 300%. Now, a flat loading, as we said before, doesn't quite work. Then there's the age-dependent loading. So while it does provide a better fit than the flat loading, it does require relatively high premiums in the early years. Then there's the 5.75 per mil loading. That, that was simply the additional loading that was required to get an average loading of 300% over the lifetime of the policyholder. Now, while it's probably the best fit to, fit to the expected relative risk pattern, you will note that the premiums at the initial start is almost six times the premium of your standard insured life, which may not be such an easy sell. So again, the cost benefit of each of the extra mortality loading options will have to be evaluated. Then our second item for consideration is the impact of extended exposure to um, to antiretroviral therapy, sorry. Now, currently not much credible information exists past 10 years duration on antiretroviral therapy. Now this means with an increasing number of persons being put on ART, the complications of the regimen will become even more relevant as we underwrite lives. Then the third item to consider is compliance. Now with healthy lives being put on ART, now this simply means that persons may not feel that inclined to take their medication because they're not feeling sick. Now, this may have a knock-on impact in that it may increase the number of newly diagnosed ART-resistant individuals, or even the youth person starting to use ART instead of your traditional barrier method. So while we acknowledge that there are still quite a few unknowns, I think we could stop and take stock of what we know and what this means for the life insurance industry. Now, we know with more research, we're now more aware of the risk factors driving HIV prognosis, enabling us to better classify HIV positive lives into more homogeneous groups. Now, we know with the improvement to ART regimen over the years, mortality and morbidity rates have declined dramatically. We know that with the introduction of tests and treat, persons will now be put on ART earlier, resulting in fewer new HIV diagnoses and also persons with HIV living much longer. Taken all together, this has provided an excellent opportunity for the life insurance industry to offer a full suite of comprehensive, affordable benefits for persons living with HIV, enabling them to not only protect themselves, But their families as well ladies and gentlemen i thank you
2: right uh thanks so much kandina and matthew for the wonderful presentation and also for braving that uh, difficult clicker through through the presentation uh let's let's take questions we've got uh, about 15 minutes or so to take questions so um, Maybe just before, before uh, as, the, as the guys are thinking about their first question, I've, I've got a question on, um, and I don't know who would take it. My, my question was what, or is, what is the effect, is there a long term effect of taking ART, of, of, of being on the ART program? I did notice, Kadin, on your presentation that you did indicate that you actually think that the duration uh, during which someone has been taking uh, the medication is probably a rating factor. So well, that probably tells that there's, there's an impact on, on them on the mortality or morbidity. So what, what, what is that effect?
0: Should we let the boss get this
2: one?
0: you
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, on. no. yeah, try again. Okay. No. Uh, let's try the, the next one. The one next no. to you.
0: Is mine on?
2: Yours should be on, yeah.
1: Thank okay. Okay. All right, okay. Um, yeah, so the problem with, with figuring out what to do with, with ART in the long term is what we've seen is over time the side effect profiles have decreased um, as regimens and treatments have got better. But like Adine mentioned, there's not a lot of really long term data on, on what the effects of ART are even with improved side effects. So it's, it's, that is a little bit of an unknown. So while we think that with better, safer regimens, it probably won't, be, won't have a massive effect on mortality and morbidity, it's definitely something that you can't just rule out. Good.
2: Thanks so much for that. Um, who has got the second question? Okay, there's a question in the corner. on. Yep. Um, is there, what work is being done, particularly in the public health
1: space, to improve ART compliance? Um, and then I suppose linked to that, um, what work is being done um, after ART? So what, what are the next steps in fighting, fighting this disease? Um, I can give you... Probably not the complete answer you're looking for. I think that uh, working in the insurance industry, you are a little bit removed from exactly what happens in the public health space, although we do have a, a doctor that, that is in our office that comes from that, that public health space. Essentially, one of the key things to remember is that in a test and treat environment, that treating people at diagnosis is one of the most effective mechanisms to prevent new infections and prevent the spread of HIV. Um, in terms of compliance, the, the counseling that, that goes into starting a patient on ART hasn't, hasn't changed. So it's not to say that once you walk into a clinic and you get diagnosed with HIV, they give you a bunch of medication and they say off you go. Um, there is a a very rigorous counseling process that ensures that both physically and mentally patients are ready to effectively begin taking medication for the rest of their life. So so those are the steps and obviously with a fixed dose combination it's a lot easier. So those are the the steps that are are being taken to uh, ensure that compliance is, is upheld and obviously preventing further spread. Um, and again, it's in terms of, of further spread, the, the usual um, education campaigns become all important as well.
2: Thanks so much. Uh, any other questions? Okay, there's a question. That's
1: Thank you. Um, I'm just wondering how compliant is compliant? So I've got asthma, and I need to take a puff in the morning and I need to take a puff at night but I forget quite often. And I'm, often, I'm most often rem- reminded about it when I start having breathing problems. i like, oops, I haven't taken my medication for a week. So, and I've been on it for years and I'm not getting better at being compliant. So a lot of this pricing and underwriting um, requires compliance to use this medication daily or every second day or however it works. But it feels like there's a lot of risk there in someone not on purposely not being compliant, but just accidentally forgetting or yeah, whatever the case may be. Um, yeah, so you're absolutely right. In terms of antiretroviral treatments, the compliance needs to be in the 90-95% range, which is extremely high. Uh, the, problem, the problem as soon as you start going below that is that, particularly you allow things like those latent reservoirs to crop up and they can develop resistance which causes a problem down the line. Uh, if that does happen, you do have the option of second line regimens um, so it's not that if you if, if you're resistant to one drug you're resistant to all drugs, um, which is obviously promising, but there is there is a there is the reality that we need to be cognizant of, and this was also communicated by one of the professors, a virologist at Lancet Labs in discussion, when we had discussions with her about this, that is, that is a possible concern going forward that the more ART available to the, to the HIV infected population, there may be a, somewhat of an increase in drug-resistant strains. Um, it's definitely something that you can't ignore. You need to be cognizant of it.
2: Okay, uh, do we have any other questions? Okay, looks like we've gone through all our questions. I've got one more question. Um, couldn't the, the graph that you did put up, you you indicated that for insured population, the prevalence for females seems to be much higher up to the age of, I think, 55 or 60 there. Is it is it because of the incidence in the population or is it simply a of the fact that these are insured lives?
0: I think it's quite difficult to say um, in general, since the results were based on the results from Lancet Lab, which would only look at the positive test results being done in a particular year. So the the prevalence seen and the information shown was for that specific subset of the the, um, persons tested. I think in general it's quite difficult to say what the prevalence is in the insurance population since we only collect um, HIV test results, information at application stage, so.
2: Right, thanks so much. This was a very insightful and uh, inspiring uh, presentation. Thank you so much for the hard work and thanks so much for your time. Enjoy the rest of the conference.